0: well good morning since uh it's already 902 903 um <clears throat> we'll go ahead and start since there's only gonna be, because of the other class uh there's just very few of us in here i'd ask if you would to come up closer please um because we are, we are going to have um some discussion questions anyway i'll be talking so if, if you wouldn't mind um, sitting closer and we can hear each other better and um and uh, we can not feel so alone. Um. Yeah, I'll leave uh, closer being, you define closer, so you can, you know, as close as you can be feel comfortable, but... All right, well let's start with a word of prayer and we'll get going. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you give us life and that you uh give us um one another that we can come this morning and be together and and we can spend time in your word and we can uh spend time fellowshipping with each other and encouraging each other. Thank you for um that that great thing that you've given to us being part of your body and the Lord bless our time this morning we want this to be about you and about how we respond to you in Jesus name amen <clears throat> all right um, we've been going through this series called called obedience and disobedience and it's a uh, a series that's really showing the relationship between God and man and how God so generously calls man um, into his, uh, his presence gives him a a chance, gives man a chance for a relationship with him and how man struggles with that, how man is, is up and down. And so we have one generation maybe that's, that's um, really walks with God and, and worships God. And in another generation, that walks away from God and how mankind is, is historically had this issue. You see it from the time of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, um, were close to God and, and God had given them, uh, that ability of relationship. And yet their firstborn son chose a different way and, and walked away from God. And, uh, it's been that way ever since. And so, um, we see this carried on culture by culture. We've seen it through the Book of Judges, um, as as we looked at it. We'll be talking just a little bit more about that today. Um, our primary focus today is Israel rejecting God as the King, uh, as God has set up this nation to um, to be a nation that um, is is really in relationship with God directly and um and so what what happens is eventually over a period of of around 400 years Israel demands a king we'll be looking at that today okay A couple of weeks ago, we were in the Book of Judges, and, and we were in the Book of Judges for about three weeks. And um, in that book of Judges, we, what we saw was a continual cycle of people uh, being drawn away from serving God to serving idols. So as a, as a first question, uh, what is the attraction to idolatry? Why does it always seem to be seducing people? What's the attraction? Yes. Okay, good. So the, the, uh, the idea is that, that man creates an idol they're comfortable with. And, uh, and so they, they um, create this alternative system. Um, and, and, and you said something, too, about the, the idea of even treating God as an idol, the true God as an idol. We're actually going to see that in the story a little bit, or we have seen it last week. We saw it in the story a little bit um, with the way Eli's sons were, were uh, conducting the service to God. Um, there, there is a flavor of that, which is, which is kind of uh, interesting. Um, okay, any other thoughts on why? What's the attraction to idolatry? Okay, right. With a lot of the idolatry practices, there's a lot of sexual <clears throat> um, a, a seduction to it. And so that makes it appealing to, to the flesh of people. Okay. That's definitely got to be one of the issues. Um, any other ideas? The attraction of idolatry. Right? I remember as we were going through this a couple of weeks ago, um th- you know thinking you know it, it's sort of frustrating when you read the book of judges one of the feelings i get from judges is frustration um as i read it, it's like why why do they keep going back but understand this is over hundreds of years of time so it's we you know we read it in a compacted way um but there is a seduction there is is something that's attraction and, and so um one of the things is it appeals to the flesh. And so it definitely is, is something that I, idolatry, it, it, it grabs the fleshly desires of human beings. Um, I mean, if you're going to create your own religion, is, is, aren't you going to do that? You're going to make it attractive to, and appealing to our fleshly desires. Uh, it minimizes sin. Um, and you know who who doesn't want to do that? Uh, that's that's also a natural part of our being is to minimize our sinfulness, and um, it's pluralistic. There's a, a pluralistic idea here, and, and we see this in our culture uh, quite a bit. In fact, it's it's like an honorable thing to be pluralistic, to respect everybody's religions. Everybody's religions are okay. Everybody's beliefs are okay. And um, so, so that's one of the ways it gets in. You know, they're, they're supposed, they're, God has chosen them to be a, a uh, special people. Uh, the King James Version uses the word peculiar, a peculiar people, a, a people that are set apart, that are going to be different. Um, but that's hard to hold on to in, in our own flesh, right? And uh, you look out at the other people and you're maybe trading, doing business. Uh, trading goods and and so on with these other cultures, and um, you know you go to this other place and you, you know you exchange goods and uh, you be- begin to develop relationships and yeah their their religion is different than yours, but you become accepting and, and it begins to to uh, wick up into your own culture and pretty soon it has has uh, taken over. And that's one of the, the um, issues, too, is, is that pluralism that's there. And there's also the pressure of being different. And we're going to see this um, a little bit in our um, specific lesson today. But in, in the book of Judges, we see, you know, that God has called them to be different. And there's that, that tension of, I don't want to be different. You know, I want to be like everybody else and uh that's the same for us as as uh, christian people growing up in our culture uh there's the pressure that the world that we'll be talking about that the world is always seeking to uh conform everyone to its system there's always that pressure from the world of conformity okay um from last week what was the example of dumb things husbands say to their wives Anybody remember? Last week was was on the birth of Samuel. Um, doesn't it jump out to you like it does to me. Uh, whenever I read this, it makes me laugh. When uh, Samuel's father, did you? Elkanah, yeah, that's um, it. I better than, I how many sons, mm-hmm. better than mm-hmm. ten sons, yes, that's it. It's the um, um, or hopefully, um hopefully kids to play that. right. So he 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 goes. They go to the to the place of worship. Their yearly worship at Shiloh, and uh, Elkanah brings back to Hannah a double portion. He brings back a portion for for Panina, his, his other wife and, and all of her children, but brings to Hannah a double portion and she's grieving. She's sad because she has no children. And, um, and so his response was, well, am I not better than 10 sons? And, uh, it just made me, me laugh. It's like when, if my wife is grieving over something, um, I could bring her two double doubles and two orders of fries and say, am I not better than 10 sons? Um, yeah, I don't think that really (laughs) made her feel better. Um, uh, but anyway, that was one of the examples I think of dumb things that husbands say to their wives from last week. What was the failure of Eli, the priest with his sons? What's that? Discipline, okay. Lack of failure it's failure to restrain them. Eli was in a particular position as high priest. As high priest, that was a position that gets handed down father to son. These are his two sons. Eli was is described as a man who fears God and has respect for God. And we do see some examples of that in the narrative. Um, His sons are supposed to take over after him and he keeps hoping, I guess, that they're going to turn around. But he doesn't do anything himself to make that happen. And one of the things that you remember, there was the, the prophet who comes to Eli and um, issues this declaration from God of what's going to happen and how um, the the descendants of of Eli are going to have short lives. There's not going to be an old man from now on in his descendants' line. Um, His sons will be killed the same day. And that will be a, a, a sign that this was all going to come true and that there would be a new line of the priesthood. And, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But what there's a statement in there in the middle of, of that declaration that this prophet gives to Eli. And it is this, that that Eli, you have honored God or honored your sons above God. And that's the, the, um, the crux of it that the Eli has by his actions, Giving greater honor to his sons than he has to God, and and one of the things I think that we're to take away from that is the seriousness of how we view God, and 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 the, do our actions actually measure up to what we say we do? Eli's actions didn't did not measure up to that in in the way he dealt with his sons. He honored his sons as higher, and we also see though. Um, in First Kings chapter two, we get the the story of of Solomon, who's taken over as king, and Solomon is kind of cleaning up all this stuff that's been left over from when David was king. Some of that cleanup involves old enemies and so on. And you read that narrative and how Solomon is is taking care of business with them. One of them is the high priest Abiathar, who had gone against david at the time of absalom's rebellion and and david did not uh, have abiathar executed for treason uh, but just had him (coughs) put aside abiathar was a descendant of eli and it says in the passage there that uh, when solomon became king solomon had him executed and and it was as a final finality or a final judgment from the line of Eli. And it, in, it, in the scripture, it goes back to this section of scripture. So it's an uh, interesting uh, finish to uh, the story, to the judgment that God brought upon Eli's family. Eli being a high priest, being a special chosen person for this job, and yet God would not put up with it. And there's one more thing from... Uh, Last week, uh, what was wrong with their use of the Ark of the Covenant? Remember, they his two sons, they were going to go to battle with the Philistines and they're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with them so they can be victorious. What was wrong with their use of it? very good that's a good answer it's it's a a sin of per, uh, presumption isn't it presuming upon god um and i think that's a, a really good answer the ark of the covenant was symbolic of god in fact it was a place where god dwelt um and yet god doesn't just let us wield him around as a as a um uh, a superpower for us um I remember uh, the first time I watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there was this sense that that they took the Ark of the Covenant that way, and that the um, and if you've not seen the movie, it's, it has to do with the Nazis and they're trying to get the Ark because it would be a great power for them, but God doesn't get manipulated like that, um, and and God does what He wants to do, and we're the ones that are to bend to Him, not him been to us and so uh, God's power doesn't get wielded by us and they completely misunderstood the whole thing and they were very presumptuous in what they did and and if you read the story further on the ark eventually comes back to Israel because because God uh, brings about all kinds of plagues and so on to the Philistines because they have it so they want to get rid of it Um, and they send it back to Israel and uh, it it goes into this village and uh, so there's some Levites there that come and they're going to take care of it and yet they don't really treat it as holy either and the description there is that there's some people that actually looked into the ark and so on and it says there that God killed over 50,000 people in their village that day so they wanted to send it to another village (laughs) and they did um but uh god is holy and the description there is that they did not treat it as holy not not as they should have and and we need to remember um just who god is and god is not to be manipulated god doesn't just follow according to our plan um we're to bend to his plan Yeah, there was that idea. It's a good luck charm or it's it's some source of magical power. And, and while we have it, you know, the force will be with us, you know, well, Saint way, okay? you're St. Christopher. Yeah, well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. God is God doesn't God has his own plan. And in and, and our place is to humbly submit to that, to submit to his plan. And and so that's that's where that is supposed to be. Let's turn to First uh, Samuel chapter eight, and we'll be reading out of uh, chapter eight. But I want to, before we get to that, um, identify Samuel a little bit more Samuel is is a uh, an amazing person in in history and um, there's a, a lot to this character I want to give a little bit of where he fits um, as far as in his lineage and so on so you can see uh, just who he is and that actually will help us get a flavor for what we went over last week with um, why Hannah would present him to be um, in, in the temple or in the tabernacle with the priest, why he would even be there. But let's look in 1 in, uh, in Chronicles chapter 6, and uh, starting in verse 31, it says, Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. After the ark rested there, they ministered with song before the tabernacle of the temple of the tent of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order. These are those who served with their sons from the sons of the Kohathites. And the Kohathites, by the way, Kohath was one of the three sons of uh, Levi. Levi was the tribe uh, Uh, that was chosen to be the priestly line. And the Kohathites, um, the sons of Kohath, were to be the ones that actually held the office of priest. The others did temple service, um, but the Kohathites were the actual priests. So from the sons of the Kohathites were Haman, the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, the son of Elkanah, and the son of Jehoram. Now let's go on down because there's a, a list there to verse 37. The son of Tehath, the son of Asir, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Um, so Samuel is born to a family that is a Levite family. And the reason why I bring that up is because in 1 Samuel... Uh, chapter 1 it describes uh, Elkanah as being from Ephraim and doesn't really clarify there uh, who he really is but if you remember as, as the tribes were dispersed to their different territories the one tribe that didn't have its own territory was the tribe of Levi and so in each tribe there were cities that were designated for Levi and so they were to be scattered throughout the nation um, really ostensibly to uh, be spiritual guides throughout the nation and, and, and uh, reminders that they were all one nation and the tribe of Levi was supposed to be the spiritual glue that held it all together. And so we have here uh, a family that's from the tribe of Levi that's dwelling within the, the, the tribal area of Ephraim, and that's the the family that um, Samuel comes from. Now, in, in uh, First Samuel chapter eight, we get the narrative of the um, the demand for the king. In chapter 7, we can read the story of the Philistines being routed by Israel's armies. And uh, that's the story where uh, Samuel puts the rock of help out there called the Ebenezer. And, and it is this, the, the account of by uh, the leadership of Samuel, the spiritual guidance of Samuel, that they have this great victory. In all of that, though, um, things change. Time goes by, and and we'll uh, pick it up there in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside to dishonest gain, and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give, a, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, to reap his harvest, and make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men. And your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. We have here a uh, big transition in in how israel is going to be governed what israel had been given by god was a system of of uh, a relationship a system of government that reported straight to him they were given freedom now freedom is not easy And, and as we read through the book of judges we see how mankind struggles with freedom. But that is what God gave them. And had they obeyed his laws, they would have uh, been, been safe. God was the one who fought their battles. Uh, they would have been able to handle all of the things that happened within the culture because they had ways of dealing with it. They had ways of dealing with criminal behavior. They had ways of dealing with uh, certain disputes and so on. And so all of that would be handled. Um, God gave them freedom. And yet they're willing to trade um, all of that for security and stability. What they would see as, as security and stability. And there are three things that in, in the warning that God gives to them, three areas of freedom that, that come up. One, the first one is economic freedom. Uh, we see there's going to be taxation. Taxation. And the taxation is going to be at the exorbitant rate of 10% that we see here. Um, and and <laughs> they would cry out to that. Now, um, for most Americans, 10% would be a big tax cut. Um, but um, to God, that 10% seems overbearing. I remember uh, hearing a, an economics um, professor one time say that if talking about our uh, flat tax rate for the United States, his statement was if 10% is good enough for the Baptist church, it should be good enough for the federal government. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, uh, would be much lower than what we actually pay. Uh, in their culture, they had their tithes and offerings, their tithes actually uh, when they were all added up there was there were three tithes, and so it would be about twenty two and two thirds percent if you added it all up. It was what they were to be bringing um, either annually or every third year uh, to the temple uh, as their um, tithe to god that was That was their way of of giving thanks and of remembering who it was that gave them what they have and so That was their their way of participating in God's economy. On top of that, though, now would be a king who would be taking more from them. And so there would be uh, that economic freedom that would be taken away from them. Not only that, but but we're talking about uh, freedom of career. In, In God's culture that he had for them, they had freedom. Unless you were the firstborn son... You could grow up to be, um, choose your career, choose your business, uh, whatever you wanted. If you're the firstborn son, yeah, you're stuck on the farm. You've got to stay there and you've got to keep it going because it's in the family name. And that was that was God's way of anchoring stability, economic um, stability for every family. Um, but everyone else gets to, to grow up and uh, they can become... The jeweler. They can become the carpenter. They can become uh, whatever else um, they wanted to be. That was that was the freedom that was going to be there Um, under this system under the king. That freedom is going to be greatly diminished because it says uh, this king. He's going to take your sons to be in the military. He's going to take your sons to work in his fields. He's going to take your sons to do all these other jobs. He's going to take your daughters to do do certain jobs. And so uh, that freedom is going to be taken away. No, no, no. We still want a king, they said. Uh, The third one was the conscription. Uh, They're going to be drafted into the military. Um, They're they're not going to have a choice. Um, When we read in the book of Judges, the, the, the people, the call would go out for an army to come and and they would be an all volunteer army. All all the men who would come would be volunteers. It's not going to be that way anymore. It's going to be um requirement <coughs> for for those uh to, to be in the military. So so we see these freedoms that are going to be traded for what they think is going to be Security and stability. If when we read on throughout the kings, uh, we find that the history doesn't get that much better, right? It's we still have the same corruption in our hearts, the same same issues, and um, so it really doesn't get that much better. But why is self-government so hard? This is, I think, the um, the the issue is as I read this passage. This is what pops out to me is is this this idea of trading self government to be ruled, and so why is self government so hard? Any ideas out there we're What's that because we're humans, because we're humans? okay. That's a general idea, but what is it about our humani- humanity that makes it makes it tough? We're what? <laughs> okay, we have a fallibility in our minds, don't we? Okay. Okay, good. There's a tendency for lust for power. Decisions are based on self-interest. And self-interest isn't by itself a bad thing. Um, there, There is actually a lot of, of uh, scripture supporting the idea of self-interest, that, that God has that in mind. But when you combine it with our corruption, it gets twisted. And, and we begin to take our self-interest above other people's interest. And they have something in their law that gets referred to, we see it in the New Testament, that is the overriding, overarching theme of how they are to live with one another. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And if they can do that, uh, they would be able to... Um, deal with their self-interest in a healthy way Um, but they can't think about just in in our culture in fact in our state or even in our county how much money we spend on law enforcement um, just on law enforcement itself why because we don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart we don't love our neighbors ourselves. we don't have that self-government under control as, as a general population. And so we have to spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars um, as a state on law enforcement from the police to the judges, to the courts, to the prisons, uh, you know, all the way down the line, because we can't obey that. If we could obey that, if we could obey the loving Lord with all of our heart and our neighbors, ourselves Look how much money we can save, but that's that's the way we are. Um, one of the ideas that strikes me with this is that um, there's a lie that gets told to us that um, and, and that we believe that freedom is is the thing that pushes against boundaries and 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 goes over boundaries so that we can go anywhere we please. And that's how our culture at large defines freedom. Uh, I was driving down a road uh, on Tuesday of this week over in Hemet, driving toward Hemet. I was on Sanderson. If you're familiar with with um, Hemet at all, you'll know that street. Uh, and so driving down, and I'm in the north, north part of town, So there's still open fields and so on. Well, it was the day after the rain. So the fields are filled with water. It looked like ponds out there. And um, off to the side of the road were a couple of police cars. And uh, they were uh, on either side of this other car that had gone off the side, nose first into the bog. (laughs) That was the word that came to my mind when I saw it. Um, My first thought was, how did that car get there? You know because it's just face first, then, because I'd already been doing some some preparation for this lesson, the second thing that came to my mind was that car wanted freedom, you know that push against the boundaries this is and that's exactly how this is uh, the The lie that we get told is if we push against the boundaries, we can be free. Um, that car, however, was stuck. It wasn't going anywhere after that. And so the freedom could only go so far. Um, When I was uh, first learning to drive, one of the things I was told was try to keep it on the black stuff between the trees. Um, And and that's where the freedom is, right? The freedom is when you stay within the boundaries. And think about it in, in other areas of life, like a budget, a financial budget. Um, now, my nature is I would prefer to spend everything I have you know i I love to spend money, and uh so I want to spend it because that's free, I feel so free and until you get the bill, right, and you get uh the bill from the credit card company and you find out, uh oh, I'm in bondage, and so that freedom that 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 thing that looks so free is actually what's going to um uh, put me in chains it's going to bind me and so going beyond the boundaries it's a lie that that's freedom um think about it with diet with with how we eat now um i i like to think you know kind of laughingly say that i'm on a seafood diet right uh everything i see that's what i want to eat um yet uh just like everyone else i have to be careful i have to be disciplined i have to 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 treat my body within certain bounds and sometimes i'm less successful in other times uh, one time i was walking through a costco where uh some of the people there know me and and so a person stopped me and said have you been losing weight and i i thought well no, i don't think so and uh but, you know, it just was like, wow, it made me feel really good. So I went out to the food court and bought, bought an ice cream bar. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought I'd celebrate that, that, that thing. Um, but, but diet is one of those things that, that can easily get out of control. And, and yet, that's what puts us into bondage. It's when we push against the boundaries, it puts us into bondage. The same thing is true in a, on a more serious issue is, is with sex. There are certain boundaries, guidelines that God has given to us. But we say, I want to be free. I want to be free. And yet, when we go and and try to exercise that freedom, what do we find there? We find bondage. Read Proverbs. Proverbs is very descriptive about this idea of what's at the end of that, of that expression of so-called freedom. No, God has given to us laws that um, that should uh, protect us and actually give us more freedom I found this quote by John Locke that I really like and I'll try to read it to you so that it can make sense to you because some people who wrote back in the 1600s write in a different way than, than we do today so, but anyway it's this for law in its true notion, is not so much the limitation as the direction of a free and intelligent agent to his proper interest, and prescribes no farther than is for general good of those under that law, and that ill deserves the name of confinement, which hedges us in only from bogs and precipices, so that... However, it may be mistaken. The end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. And the idea that he's expressing there is, is that law is a protector and, and actually an increaser of freedom. And he's getting his ideas from the Bible. He, he's, he's, he's understanding that God has given to us law and given to us structure to free us. Um, There was a a Jewish rabbi that we're very familiar with who's walking through first century Israel, and he's encountering all of the the regulation and the the heavy weights that are put upon people from all of their laws and the, the extra things that have been piled upon people. And Jesus said to them, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's been God's intent. That's God's heart for us. That his his ways are good for us. His structures are healthy for us. But our nature is to push and say, no, I want to be free. And all we do is put ourselves in more bondage. And that is the essence of what Israel does here. And to get to that next issue, they say that we want to be like the nations, the other nations. What is so ominous about that phrase, like all the nations, that's in their request? ominous ominous is is something that is is a warning of something dangerous there's there's a dangerous warning there okay i, I guess i'm are you saying that instead of like like the nations okay right so they're they're actually in wanting to be like the nations they're they're pushing away from being like god okay okay so god is is always has reminded them and in, in this passage it reminds them again of what i have called you from what i've created you to be and I, that is to be different from the other nations and it, it it's my belief that god created them to be different to be a light to the other nations a light of god's glory and god's goodness and of god's ways and yet they want to go back and be like the nations okay that's part of it. That, that's, that's a lot of it, too. I think one of the things that strikes me with this is coming out of judges, there's a history of idolatry, of, of problems that's like the nations. And now they're saying we want to be like the nations. There's that idolatry flag that just jumps up to me. And, uh, and then, of course, their distinctiveness is going to be diminished. They're to, that God has made them to be distinct. Um, and that's that's not they're not going to be as distinct, and so they're not going to be that model of freedom to the rest of the world, instead be like the other nations. All right, um, Why did God allow the request to be granted? i don't know. Uh, we 'll have to ask him when we get to heaven, I guess. Um, he doesn't really say. But there are some things that, in the in way, God does things. Um, God is not stymied by our silliness and our foolishness. <clears throat> in fact, God usually, in fact, that's what he has to work with, right? And so he, he works with it, and he accomplishes his purpose anyway. In Genesis 17, um, we just went through this a couple of weeks ago in Pastor Milton's sermon, where God talks to Abraham and, and gives Abraham this covenant and what will come in his covenant. And in, in verse 6, it specifically says there will be kings in your descendants. So God has this planned already. That there will be kings coming from his descendants. And uh, the second thing is in, in Matthew chapter 1. What do we see? We find from uh, the second king, who is David, being in the line of Christ. And so there is this um, this this royal line that, that gets created that God in his purposes, in his plans, um, sits about to accomplish. So we don't get to know what alternative um, worlds would have happened had different decisions been made and how God would have accomplished all that uh, that's thats not how we, we don't get to know that um, but we do know that God is fully able to accomplish his purposes in spite of our weaknesses and so God is, is very gracious in all that and God is very gracious in this situation as well and so we find that the um, in chapter nine and, and chapter ten we find the the man Saul who who becomes king and uh, it's a very interesting story. I encourage you to read it if you've not read it or um, read it again. Uh, how God through His providence brings this man to become king. And Saul starts off really well. He ends very badly, as we're going to find out next week. But um, but. He is the one who becomes king. All right. We need to to wrap up here. What are the ways of the world of which we must be wary? Speak loudly so we can hear you. right so mike is saying that that um there are subcultures that that exist underneath maybe the overlying culture that may be defined by religion in the overlying culture but underneath there are things that that eat away even of the values that are of that culture and in our culture the media is one of the big drivers that's underneath everything and that even in in uh, christian churches uh amongst God's people we can find ourselves taken in and influenced um, even in maybe a subliminal way um, in uh, in a way that's away from God and we can find ourselves wanting to be like the world I think these are great warnings for us and things for us to to pay attention to 1st John chapter 2 15 to 17 says that we're to not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Um, if we do, the love of the Father is not in us. Um, and, and that is a very strong statement because the same writer, John, writes in John three sixteen that God so loved the world, right? Now he's writing, don't love the world. And so we, we know that, that that word world is two different things. In John three sixteen, that's the people and, and, and the, the people that God has chosen to, to uh, bring to salvation. In 1 John 5, there's, there's the idea of the world there is the systems, the thoughts, the philosophies that govern uh, man's uh, uh, interactions in the world. And so uh, those are the things that we're not to love, we're not to be conformed to it. And John goes on to list three things there, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that come out in the systems of the world. And those are, we don't have time right now for the analysis of those three things, but those are the three, three items that really you can find at the core of the world's philosophies and the world's systems And uh, those are things that we're not to emulate, not to go along with. We are to be different from that. God has called us to be distinct. Um, In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, uh, Paul writes, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed, right? And so there's this conformity that the world actually is always, always pressing for us to come to it. The world always wants us to conform. It's always been that way. It was that way when Noah was building the ark. It's been that way all through human history. The world has its own systems. And, and of course, the, the systems are influenced by Satan. Satan is the one who's the enemy of God, who's at war with God. And we are the battlefield. And so we, we have to understand that and we have to realize That the world is always going to be pressing us for conformity. It's not going to conform to us. It's not going to conform to God on its own. In fact, when Jesus comes back. He's not going to enter into negotiations. um, And, you know, try to get everyone to come along and buy his system. No, he's going to establish it after having destroyed a lot of the population. And certainly the armies of the world. He doesn't negotiate. Because the world will not conform to God. Um, But it will continue to press us to conform to itself. But we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the gospel. Uh, One more quote from John Locke. Oh, wait a minute. Did I... Oh, before we get to that. What is the freedom we have regardless of the governmental system under which we live? Well, to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors ourselves. We have that freedom, right? We can always do that no matter what governmental system we live in. Uh, We can still do that. We have that freedom. And that is a very freeing thing to that. God's laws are perfect. And his laws are given to us that we may walk in freedom. And in dignity as a human being, and another thing we can do is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind okay another th- this this uh, last quote from John Locke is men we have God for our king, and under we are under the law of reason as Christians, we have Jesus the Messiah for our king, and are under the law revealed by him in the gospel and Under any society, under any governmental system, we can have this in our hearts. This is who we can be as Christians, as followers of Christ. All right, and I want to close with Psalm 36. Psalm 36 really gives us the difference between being conformed to the world or being transformed to God and and what God really offers us, the freedom and the life that God offers us. David wrote this, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doors of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. I think that's a really great description of what we've been talking about. You have the contrasts of of worldviews and um, you have the effects of what um, peace with God is um, and, and the warning at the end of, of not departing from that and not getting caught up in ourselves so that we miss what God has given to us. God is our creator and he's the one who designed us and he's the one who wants the best for us. And our place is a place of faith, trusting in his design, trusting in what he wants. The law of the Lord is perfect and we can, we can uh, trust in that. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for rescuing us from darkness and giving us light and helping us to see, Lord, you're the one who brings dignity to our life. You're the one who gives us freedom. You're the one who uh, makes our life meaningful and matter. Lord, help us to be um, wary and watchful from our own ways, our own flesh, the, own, the the things that are around us that can deceive us, and help us to be strong in uh, in walking in our faith and walking with you, that we may not only walk in your ways, but be a light to others and an encouragement to the world around us to seek after your light, after your truth. May we, Lord, be uh, people who our, our uh, blessings in our community, uh, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Lord, may our lives uh, be lives that you use to bless those who need you so much.